Brown Genius is a podcast in full color spectrum dedicated to providing a platform for underrepresented voices. This Chicano Picasso production is brought to you with generous support from the Arts Affinity Group. Thank you for listening. One, two, one. many sick, many sick. One go food, many drink, many drink. Diversify scope, money straight, money straight. Proper simple, human being, human being. So fresh, so clean, my mind limousine. My quasar so my crown, I king. My beam so mean, my gangster lane. I bomb your scene, my people get free. Root the tradition, set the condition. Break the system, forward transmission. Brown Genius, Winter Solstice Edition, 2017. This is your co-host, Molina Speaks. And this is Cherie Love Mestiza Brown. You look so beautiful over there, Ms. Love Mestiza. And in the studio, we have Mr. Michael Il-7 Acuna, also known as Acuna Black, hip-hop historian, hip-hop futurist, one of the dopest MCs on the planet. So we are grateful to be in the building with him on this winter solstice. This moment in which the sun is at its lowest place in the year. And from this day forward, you know, after these three days in which the sun sits at this low place, as they say, after three days in fulfillment of the scriptures, the sun starts to rise and we march our way right back to that summer solstice. So. You know, we're dealing with this darkness, but at the same time, it's an affirmation of light that is to come. So Brown Genius, we don't do this every week. We don't do this every month. Um, Time is very relative to us, and we're definitely on a nonlinear model, building up this library of resources that will stand the test of time. Uh, So, you know, if it's been a minute and you've been hungry for it, and you're like, when are these fools going to broadcast that new episode like i'm hungry for my brown genius y'all are leaving me hanging we're back and uh, we're very excited to do this we will follow this up with the mestizo project part one denver edition that will conclude our first season and uh, we'll be in the laboratory creating a fresh new experience for you uh, come season two whenever that may be but you know you can find us in the clouds not just in the cloud. You can find us in the stars. You can find us in the dirt. You can find us in your blood. You know, you can find us in anything beautiful that resonates and translates beyond this whack-ass patriarchy, this whack-ass capitalist moment where these goons, these slavers are stealing the people's wealth, transferring our public wealth into private hands. You know, beyond this racist system, this classist system, the system that wants to eat our babies. We stand in defiance of it. We keep creating, knowing that we are playing a role, past, present, and future, in freeing the ancestors, then freeing us, freeing the future ancestors, and that's why we're here. So we're at Youth on Record with Mr. Il-7, who, you know, uh, alongside myself and dozens of other artists in the community here in Denver, Uh, We may not have sold a million records. You know, we may not have become millionaires off of our music, but we contributed to a movement in which we built a $2 million studio that serves thousands of youth every single year. 
So that's our platinum record for you, baby. That's what we do here at Youth on Record. And we're blessed to be here with Ill7. Um, take it away, brother. Peace, peace. Thank you guys for having me. Uh, blessed to be here. And the first piece I think that I'm going to share with you is Nina. And the piece Nina is dedicated to uh, Nina Simone as an artist. But it's also dedicated to um, feminine energy in the sense that, you know, in most indigenous tribes, specifically the ones I know of in Africa, life uh, starts with the woman. I can feel her in the spirit. Yeah, I feel her in the beat. She the conscious of the soul to make the weirdo feel unique. She the vibe to make the mind connect the chakras to the soul. Transition of the spirit that gets trapped up in the flow. I speak in code, a story told, a future holds and knows a well. I could tell up in the spell, the message told the soul rebel. So now I'm falling on a mission and a mission of the play. Put the view upon display, see what she did today. I know, I know. Mind gone, slipped out of space, walking in the spirit, calling in my happy place. I caught the gas face while on a paper chase. In a one-man band, you keep your own pace. Simone, Nina, Moan. Halfway home, take me to the water center, man, I'm told Black is the color of my true lover's hair Little girl blue fortune tell stories there Little girl blue fortune tell stories there Black is the color of my true lover's hair And what I'm talking about within the course refers back to uh, Different connections and songs that Nina Simone wrote over the course of her career um, Very much an artivist in the ways that she engaged and um, the topics uh, that she talked about um, and was very much, um, you know, put under, uh, I don't know, persecution for being who she was and being unapologetic on who she was. So uh, I think she's a, an important person to celebrate um, as being an artist and an activist that engages in change in the community um, there's a lot to lose being opinionated about uh, systematic structures. And um, she is one who um, who lived a long life, actually. Who, she, she didn't die young, uh, but within the course of her life, she also dealt with extreme styles of uh, discrimination and uh, her being opinionated in the 60s and uh, the ways that she framed her career. Um, unlike her, you know, her counterparts like Aretha Franklin or you know, Gladys Knight or whoever was around her contemporaries around that time. So I give uh, the utmost respect to Nina uh, for being unapologetic uh, in who she was within the movement and uh, an important voice in, in that futurism thought process. We lost hope under the scope of blind rage. How we living in this new Jim Crow? Same cage, another page in the notebook of manufactured history, colorblinded by simple-minded men in misery. Money might control, manipulate perspectives, speaking to the old life kings. Our objective, to teach raw truth to the young black youth. Meditate on unity past the segregation that we see. Who paints pictures of hieroglyphic visions, opening our eyes to these mad-main decisions. Black is the color of my sun-kissed skin. Transformation is information to change us within. I speak life. Because my life worth speaking, preaching to the soul, because those words worth preaching, and speaking to the ones who know to find the inner man so the inner man glow. Black is beautiful. I'm talking about like the constructs of what race is and the constructs of uh, the ways that we view our, ourselves and life phasing, loose translation, 
Maybe you can get the message clear. I'm just saying, hey, we playing with a fragile design. Dynamite out of sight, JJ blowing they mind. It ain't no mystery, they hide our history Ascended king, needle in the arm Made a god of phoenix, took our dreams We chase for the glory of fame When you live, all you got is your name You sustain We made it out the rhythm of light Kinetic science and alignment, even God got a price Breathless elevation, mind glowing light Hands gripping transformation in love with the night Mind getting clear from the pain of your past Shaking from the echoes of the loud gun blast Time traveler, Acuna Black still living Mind still driven, breaking all the walls of tradition Becoming locked in with the gods Breathless opposition, us kings look odd, but we push evolution to light. Classic stagnant stolen mind, asthma out of breath. Concepts still shine bright. Concepts still shine bright. Concepts still shine. Concepts still shine bright. Concepts still shine. Like, oh, we pushing past the window pane. Watching all the time move fast. Pushing past pain's windows. We pushing past the window, pain, watching all the time move fast. Time move fast. Time and line light survival on a mission for the cause. I embrace all my flaws in the land of the dolls. Off the calls, got us all gassed up off our sin. Playing out life trends in a battle of the skin color. Brother from another mother, still call you my kin. Closer than a friend looking past external. They might frame you, try to hurt you, use your weaknesses to burn you, laugh at virtue. But they'll never learn the real you. Blind can't see true brilliance in their eyes. Frown up the sky while we fly 5280 high. Why deny the fact, wisdom, all the facts? Listen up. Their ears trying to get the message clear, but the fear make the weak mind steer clear. Open up for the ones to know. We elevate the heart so the spirit can grow. Concepts still shine bright. Concepts still shine bright. Concepts still shine. Concepts still shine bright. Concepts still shine. Thank you, brother. What's your writing process like? That's a good question. My writing process, I think it's, uh, I'm a very emotional writer. So depending on where I'm at and what I'm going through or what's triggered the emotion, whether it be politics, life, personal, you hear a lot of that come in. So sometimes I'm instantly like inspired by a situation and write about it. Other times it's a process. Sometimes I'll sit on like an idea and then come back to it later or yeah, you know, just kind of right off of inspiration is pretty much where I've been at, which is probably why I don't get as much done as I should, I guess, artistically or as much as some. But uh, I think that that's kind of how I create is more out of uh, an emotional place, uh, which kind of helps me to formulate songs in different ways. How did your upbringing impact the way that you write? Mm. I think it heavily impacted the way that I write. Um, being a, a young person who, I was a military brat, so I moved around quite a bit coming up. My dad, we lived in Limestone, Maine. I lived in Texas. I lived in Oakland. I lived in Chicago. I lived in Denver, Colorado. So I think uh, coming up the way that I did, writing was always a way for me to reconnect to who I was regardless of where I was at which 
became like a, an important release for me, I think, coming up, uh, something that I was uh, able to build an identity around. So, yeah, I think like my my upbringing and coming up in the ways that I came up really impacted uh, my writing style just because I was exposed to uh, hip hop at a young age. And because I was exposed to hip hop at a young age, it was uh, a way for me to, um, regardless of where I was living, identify to who I was within my blackness, because I think, you know, growing up in mostly uh, white environments, you can get your identity gets lost in what they want you to be versus who you choose to be. So I believe hip hop was a release for me because I identified to my identified to the outlet and who I was within the outlet. Who did the white world want L7 to be? Um, one of the one of the stories that I always refer back to uh, was when I was probably uh, around like five or six years old, living in Limestone, Maine. And uh, when I was in kindergarten, I had a uh, a white teacher. It was a trip. I had a white che- white woman teacher who, for one, had a thing against young men in her class. She really discriminated against the young men uh, in a very interesting way. And then with me being not just a, a boy in her class, but being a black young man in her class, she pretty much told my my parents that I was dyslexic. I, I had um, no capabilities of really retaining knowledge. And um, my dad at that point, my stepdad actually at that point, defended me in that, you know, at a young age, that's where that narrative actually begins. And he probably didn't understand it in complete total at that at that point, because he was young himself, I think my dad was at 19 or 20 at that at that time. So he didn't understand that completely himself, but he knew that he, w- he didn't want his kid to be called retarded. So uh, from that, I think that kind of defined the ways that I, I viewed school and I, I, I viewed whiteness. You know, the construct I was already kind of the first time that I got called nigga uh, <laughs> was living in uh, in Limestone, Maine. And that was because of ignorance and the pockets of ignorance in there. Like this is in the 80s. So during that time, it was mostly um, the only people of color that lived in Limestone, Maine during that time were Native Americans. So like, you know, like them see it like a black family was it was alien it was an I was an alien to them it was an idea and like it was the 80s too so you know they were getting that Reaganomics like narrative effect of like all black people being crackheads and you know all black people being a, a certain you know style you know so because of that um I dealt with racism within the military, being a military kid, going to military schools quite often. It was just a regular thing that I dealt with and uh, very much made me militant into like uh, my older years, going into middle school and in high school. Like my dad was very adamant about us reading and he uh, fed us books around like uh, Langston Hughes and uh, made sure that we were reading books on like black excellence as we were getting up. And it was kind of, it was always like a interesting thing too, because within me being black, I was also Latino. You know, my mom being very connected to her family. So, you know, it was always a mixed narrative for us as, as kids. Um, we always got 
discriminated against in a very specific way <laughs> by white folks, but also, you know, because me and my brothers are all different complexions, uh, we were discriminated against black folks. And then we were also discriminated against Latinos uh, at different at different points uh, when we were coming up, which changed as I got older. But being young, it became kind of a you learned how to adapt because it was almost like if you didn't learn to adapt, you could just be marginalized within that. So it gave me a very interesting uh, perspective on race and what race was at a young age. Can you tell us a little bit more about your ancestry? Mm, for um, sure. Yeah, and, and what lineages are you connected to mm. and, and uh, um, just the existence of being in that liminal space uh, right. between cultures, for sure. For sure. Um, I got like kind of a crazy background uh, on the on the way that I came up, the way my parents, I guess, came up as well. Um, so on my mom's side, um, my grandmother was white uh, from Germany and moved to Mexico uh, when she was young. Young, she was probably like three or four. My grandfather, uh, the man I call grandfather, he was indigenous to Mexico. And uh, my last name, Acuna, is a surname, so surname from Spain. Um, so within that, my family in Mexico, we, I mean, there's a whole city named after us in Mexico. And then within that, if you go to uh, like San Antonio, Texas, and different parts of that, uh, our name is really uh, prominent in the community uh, out there. But not so much outside of Texas, you know, like different parts, um, Cuba, uh, there's some places in um, Puerto Rico where you might find a few cuñas, but it's not, a, it's not a common name outside of that area. So my grandmother, this is just in depth of what was happening. And it, it kind of like, it breaks down kind of the dynamics of the times too, I think. Uh, so my mother's mixed, you know, my mother's black and Mexican. That's because my grandfather and grandmother were having problems in the relationship. And then when, within them having problems with the relationship, she dipped out and uh, she be got pregnant by a dude who was, they called him a gitchy nigga. Uh, gitchy in New Orleans is uh, East Africa. They identified certain, you know, I, New Orleans is very interesting in the fact that there's a lot of lineage connection to where people come from, still Creole. Uh, Cajun, uh, Gitchi, you know, so they identified him as Gitchi. Uh, and what that meant was he was from East Africa and his people that he was connected to were from East Africa. So, you know, when she was born, she was mixed. And then what ended up happening was, um, because she was mixed, uh, she ended up, uh, my grandmother ended up sending her away and living with, uh, my aunt was also mixed with a uh, black and Mexican. So she thought it would be easier for her to come up with somebody who identified in the ways that she came up. And then on my dad's side, and I say my real dad, because I didn't me, my, me and my dad, we have a weird relationship. And um, the, when my stepdad took us to move all these different places in the military, me and my dad ended up having kind of a weird uh, relationship because I wasn't around all the time I would go and visit. So on my dad's side, they are from Cuba through by way of Haiti. 
and they came to uh, the States through New Orleans on my dad's side. So um, one of the things that ended up happening is when they came to the States, they ended up changing their last name. So on my dad's side, they came up as Connedy. Uh, they're identified as Connedys, but like the more you get into the lineage, you realize that when they got to the States, they changed the name to Acclimate. You know, so they came right around the time of prohibition, their alcohol time. Uh, my grandfather was a preacher and the rest of my family were all kind of criminals, you know, in different ways. They were selling. I had an aunt that was a madam in Seattle, Washington. I had a uncle who lived out here, a great uncle who lived out here in Colorado, who was a bank robber. And then my, you know, my grandfather was a, a preacher who didn't want anything to do with any of them. Uh, so from that, you know, that's kind of like the lineage where my family come. My grandfather ended up moving into uh, Watts, Los Angeles. That's where a root of a lot of my family on my dad's side comes from. Uh, real heavy roots in California. Uh, they had real heavy roots within like a lot of activism during that time. A revolutionary stuff that was happening. My father and uncles were all involved within the Watts, riot, Watts riots and things like that that happened in the 60s. Fast forward, my father ends up going to UNLV University. My mom ends up moving to Texas, uh, moving from Texas to Las Vegas, and that's where I was born. But like the roots, like even going deeper than that, I did, um, I did some um, research or uh, did this thing with Thomas Evans' detour exhibit called They Still Live. And then within that, got my bloodline lineage. Realize, and then from that, realizing that I had Jewish in me, I ended up having, um, you know, very strong, like, uh, Benin and Togo, African roots, some Nigerian, you know. Like, I had a lot of roots that I was aware of and some that I wasn't. Mostly the Jewish. And that was something that I ended up talking to my mom about. My grandmother being from uh, Germany. And um, we used to joke about it, but I was like, you know, at the time that she moved, her family was either coming from a Nazi regime or they were fleeing from Nazi regime. And uh, that's, uh, you know, one of the roots that was really interesting to me, real strong Native American roots. And I think that comes from either side. It can come from my mother's side or my dad's side. But Looking at my lineage, as I looked through it, I was like, oh, I can identify everybody that I am a part of is a part of a culture that's been oppressed, you know? And like uh, my passion to want to speak up against oppression, I very much, you know, relate to that because uh, so much oppression that came through uh, my bloodline and, you know, my ancestors you know, that lived before me very much was that past, you know, my African roots or past my, even my Latino roots. I think about that on, on that scale within the Jewish roots in the Native American roots and really thinking out how that plays out uh, in who I am currently, you know, and how that plays out for my children and them knowing those roots, you know, something that's important to me. So, yeah. That's really powerful. It's a lot. Yeah. Of, <laughs> yeah. That's a lot of, uh, Mixed ancestry, Lots for of, sure. But for the, sure. yeah, it makes for, I feel like a really powerful blood story, though. You it's know? a very interesting one, for sure. It's a convergence yeah. of, of so many different story bodies of people that 
like are culminating in you, you know? So it's, it's a, that's a powerful thing to even like recognize once you start recognizing every single ancestor that you're aware of. And even those that you're not like, it's, and it culminates like here in your actual like manifestation of your body and, Mm. and, and how to make sense of all of it. And yet it can flow so effortlessly and, and, you know, in, in, in the mind, you may be a walking contradiction, but like in the actual body, like it's perfect, Mm. you know, Mm. and, and it's, those things do go together mm. because mm. here you are, you know, and, yeah. and uh, just the lessons I feel like that blood can teach us is, is powerful. So I asked you a moment ago what the uh, white world wanted young seven to be. Mm. And now I'll ask you, uh, what do you feel that the black world wanted young Acuna black to be? It's mm. a good question. The black world. That's one of the most interesting questions, too, because I have one of the most interesting relationships uh, with Black culture and Black community. I think that, um, and I recognize it, too. I, I, I came from a certain style of privilege that allowed me to be exposed to the different ideas of what Blackness is. And I've always had an interesting relationship within Blackness because... I am so black and so counter what the stereotypical narrative is in some ways and very much in line in certain ways, you know? And I think that, like, depending on the community that I'm engaged with, it, like, they don't know how to take me sometimes, you know? So if I go into, and that's, and I think that goes back to my parents, you know, my dad, um, both of my dads, you know, my stepdad and my real dad, even with them being black came from, even within them being from Vallejo and Watts, there was a certain style of privilege that they came from, uh, even within living in, you know, some urban neighborhoods, um, very articulate, you know, and then within that going to see my family in the South and like, because I'm articulate and pronounce words very well it, without a Southern draw. That can be, especially back then when I was coming up, perceived as whitewashing. He talks white. Why does he talk like that? You know, which was always, you know, it was what, what my dad's like. You need to talk better. <laughs> you don't you don't pronounce well enough. So it was always this duality of like navigating a stereotype and then being secure within who I am, within my blackness around black folks. So like. You know, going to, I went to a, a few military schools, private schools, and then be one of the only few black dudes on the basketball team or on the track team and then playing black schools. And they're like, oh, you know, they want to test you. They want to, they want to see how black you are. It's like, man, I don't got to prove how black I am. I like get discriminated against all the time. Like, yeah. So I feel like it becomes one of those things within, uh, that I've always dealt with within the black community. Um, and it's always and it's, the most interesting thing is, is that I've been so embraced by the Latino community in a totally different way from the black community. It's always an interesting thing to me. I've always had this duality of like, I don't know what it was, but um, 
it's been easier as I've gotten older to relate to Latinos in some ways than it has uh, for Blacks. Trust why. And I grew up in a Black environment for the most part with my dad, you know? So it's always been one of those interesting things for me. Not to say that I have bad relationships with uh, my brothers and sisters uh, that are Black. It's just been always um, interesting breaking down that narrative of who I am within it and not necessarily being like the people that I come across all the time, you know? It's, a, it's, it's always been an interesting interaction. Not to say that uh, I don't relate to Black folks by any means, because I definitely do. I think it's just the, the way that I came up being Black and not being, like, rooted in any one community. It's always kind of made the, uh, the narrative a little bit more complex and connection. Yo, I'll say that, you know, for me, you know, being Chicano, having a, a Mexicano father, and, you know, my mama is, uh, you know, Spanish and Indian, but not having those ties to Mexico, like being very Chicano. Uh, I can relate to what you're saying because, you know, on a lot of levels, I feel like First Nations folks and black folks will claim me and, and rep for me in a way that sometimes I feel like Spanish speaking Latino folks don't. You know what I mean? Like they'll mm-hmm. look at me like, mm-hmm. Like, I'm a little too weird or, or I'm a little off or even growing up, you know, within me familia, it's like uh, I talked funny or when I did speak Espanol, it was like it was weird or like the way that I would dance influenced by all these different cultures and aesthetics. Like I dance funny or I was just the one that was always a little bit offbeat and like and it was cute. Well, you're little, you know, like Matias and Matias is, is real. It's cute. It's like Adrian. He's, he's going to grow out of his weirdness and awkwardness. But when you embrace an artistic path, a creative path, when you em- embrace your spiritual path and you just accept yourself for who you are and you like, you know, you, you're unapologetic. I feel like sometimes to the people around you who like you're supposed to be the most like sometimes you're just you're just too much of a mirror you know what i'm saying that it's like you find yourself very much like being able to uh identify and kick it with other communities that have a a, maybe a similar experience but you know coming from a different like racial or cultural background but um you know that's that's something that comes to mind for me as you as you speak about that experience of sometimes being like man these Latino folks are like these Chicanos are down to claim me in a way that my own people don't. And sometimes like, um, you know, I, I feel that on, on the flip with, like I said, black folks and first nation folks who, um, sometimes just feel more embracing of me and less like suspicious or less, um, you know, looking at me sideways or trying to figure me out. I just sometimes feel more accepted. I mean, I feel like every one of us in this room can relate to the idea of just finding community and and more often than not, like you'll find that artists uh, have that same storyline for most of us as the creatives in whatever circles that we grew up in, in our familiar familial circles, you know, and trying to find community. You're just a little offbeat. You're just a little like different enough, you know, um, some of us are the black sheep. Some of us are the um, like low key outcasts of of family because you know we, you know, for for whatever reason or another. But that I feel like that's a really, really prominent story in artistic and creative communities, and thus you know, 
which which is the perfect breeding ground to create such tight knit artistic communities because we know what that feels like um, to not quite fit just enough or assimilate just enough into mainstream society or um, et cetera. And, and uh, complex ancestral backgrounds definitely <laughs> make for um, an even more like pronounced story within that. And um, that's, which is interesting because so many of us are mixed by now, you know, and, and, uh, you know, bringing back Auntie Gloria, like she talks about this. She, Gloria Anzaldua, she talks about like at a certain point, you know, we will just be so mixed. Like there is no pure blood anymore. Like we're, we're all mixed at this point. And especially whatever pockets of the world that you live in here in the Southwest, like it is just a huge, um, mixing ground uh, where where so many cultures are coming together in in these different convergences uh within proximity of one another and um and 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 that's going to produce some really beautiful experiences interpersonally as well as some dope art <laughs> dope speaking art. of t- tell us ill about your uh your perspective on black and brown aesthetics or how do you know like black and brown aesthetics when you see it as opposed to like you know music or pop art or film that's maybe is being made by people of color or quote-unquote minorities but it's it's just speaking to the dominant culture you know or speaking to the popular culture like how do you know black and brown aesthetics when you see them And, and i say the word aesthetics instead of style because i think there's on some level, like there's just more to this notion of aesthetics that's like rooted in culture beyond just like a style that you could put on. Anyhow, that's a great question. Um, so the way that I view it, I think that it really kind of goes back to construct in the ways that I view it um, on a popular on the popular culture scale, right? they don't have anything to really define their own culture, you know? And I feel that the roots of where we come from, you know, throwing hip hop back into that, like when you think about the birth of hip hop, it did include all cultures, but really who pushed it forward were blacks and Latinos in the sense that they really formed the base of what the art was uh, rhythmically within dance um, we just have different ways of engaging art and because of where we're from, you know, Jamaicans, uh, Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, uh, all these people relate to rhythm, you know. And I think that uh, rhythm in our culture, uh, cultures, uh, is something that's very important in the ways that we walk, the ways that we talk, the ways that we write, uh, the ways that we dress. It all has a rhythm to it. And when you're thinking about European or Western cultures, high thought, it's mostly violins, it's harmonies. Um, and that's the reason why they gravitate towards our culture is because we're the heartbeat, we're the rhythm, we're the root. And um, it's important to be at high thought. You know, it's important to think about high frequencies and melodies and the ways that those uh, engage in vibrations and engage us. But none of that means anything without having the heartbeat. And I think people of color, 
um, regardless if you're talking about Black, Latino, or Asian culture, or Native, Indigenous culture, um, the drum, the rhythm is such an important thing in the ways that we engage mathematics, the ways that we engage art, the ways that we engage our visual um, ways of expressing ourselves. One thing that I recently learned, talking with Dr. Hamilton, who's a mentor of mine, uh, he's uh, also was a part of the They Still Live exhibit. He collects African uh, art since the 1960s. Is that um, artists like Picasso were inspired from uh, a lot of African art? You know, he collected African masks and things like that. So, and then you think about that, he took that and then inspired somebody like Basquiat. You know what I'm saying? Which is interesting, right? You would think that Basquiat got his inspiration straight from Africa. Right. But it's it wasn't that it was his inspiration from a, a Western European. And he got inspired from that and utilized that within his art and did it in a totally different way. But it still had like that root to it. I think about that even with rock and roll. Right. Like during the time of rock and roll really being in birth uh, or really being prominent uh, in the 60s. Uh, you had artists like Muddy Waters, you had artists like even like a B.B. King who wasn't accepted in the States because they were a little too forward thought at that time for what they were doing, or it was too rooted, it was too dirty, it was too dusty. Um, but Europeans got a hold of it and they needed that within what they were doing because they were too high thought, they were too melody driven. And I think that when you mix the cultures, it's not going to sound like the root. Right. But it, it sounds like something new. It's, it becomes something uh, different. And I think that's the importance of being able to be open to different cultures. It's also important to acknowledge uh, where that rhythm, where that heart, where all that comes from. And I feel that the black and brown culture has always embraced this indigenous uh, lifestyle without even being aware of it. It's just something that we always go back to because it feels comfortable there. It feels like home there. And um, in my opinion, the vast majority of white folks, it's the same reason why they go into studying Wiccan and they, they go into studying Celtic cultures because they're trying to find their roots. But they still identify with our roots because of the ways that it affects the populist culture. Their, their popular culture would be nothing without our culture. So I think that, you know, once we can really get past the constructs of what color is and the constructs of who we are within that, um, we can find true magic and true power to push forward everything. But it's a, it's a condition that we've been rooted in for so long. And I think black and brown people, the reason why we have to have these styles of conversation um, is because we've had so much power taken away from us because of conditioning and because of the ways that construct works so that we're under the impression that we are the least. And in reality, we are the most. And if we realize that and how we affect culture, not just us being the conscious ones in the room, but I'm talking about the vast majority, if we can actually like realize who we are within that, it would be a cultural shift in the ways that we engage politics, the ways that we engage community. But it, it has to be like an acceptance of who we are first as black and brown people. I would imagine that some of what you're saying, you know, like if I was, if I was white and hadn't done a lot of work to like really understand history and the roots of racism and, and what's actually happened to 
black, brown, indigenous people all over the world. You know, if I hadn't done that work, I think it'd be really hard to like listen to what you're saying. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it like, sure. and um, I don't think that we really have that many white listeners, unfortunately. You mm-hmm. know, which which I think. I mean, you know, like we, we're, we're bombarded with white genius from the time that we're little. You know what I'm saying? We grew up mm-hmm. thinking that the only people who are genius are white. And so, I mean, I would love to have more white listeners listening to Brown Genius because we should be listening to the perspective, the creativity, the knowledge, the genius of all people. And as you're saying, and as we talk about a lot of times on this program, like uh, that fusion of information, that fusion of aesthetics um it's just going to elevate humanity if we let it if we're if we allow ourselves as men to relinquish our privilege and and listen to our sisters and and understand the power of femininity and and the real source of life we're going to elevate you know if, if white folks are able to separate themselves from their privilege and um really seek for that root that you're talking about you know uh that's going to elevate them in addition to us and and elevate humanity get us back to a place of balance but um i guess all that to say is like you know say there is you know a young white person listening to this particular podcast like i don't know what would you have what would you have to say to them in terms of like um just a path forward for us as as humanity like beyond this you know this this moment this racist moment which is a long moment but still short within the context of who we have been and who we will be um but yeah what what, what do you say about how we get past this moment it's a, it's a that's a loaded question i think that it's really it, it's just like a counseling session i guess like uh i feel like when you're dealing with race in the discussion of race you're dealing with a, a population of people that have been abused and you're dealing with a, uh, an abuser, right? Now, that's one of the hardest things to like accept, but it's the reality of what it is. Uh, just thinking about the current system that we're currently working within, which is worldwide white supremacy. And that's a hard thing for a lot of white folks to accept. They didn't necessarily. Get- it's a hard thing for a lot of people of color to like come to terms with and like just acknowledge it. Or, you know, even you find, I felt like you find a lot of people of color who are, are resistant to dealing with race. It's almost like more comfortable to not deal with it. Anyway, sorry. To no, no, ahead, that's, that's, it's true. Uh, I think that's what makes it uh, such a hard conversation. The one thing that ran, that is true globally and you know this because you've traveled worldwide and probably observed it in some very interesting ways is that white is always right. Black is always on the bottom. So no, no matter where you're going globally, um, if you're closer to the darker scale of things, uh, majority of the time, uh, you're most likely oppressed in whatever country that you live in. Even Africa. Even Africa, especially Africa, actually, like, you know, it's because of that. I think that being somebody who's oppressed, you see all of the hardships within a systematic format. Being somebody of privilege, you don't. You can't understand it because you've never had to deal um, with oppression in the same ways that a person of color. So, like, uh, somebody who is um, randomly pulled over. 
you know, uh, in a car because of their skin color or the ways that they were dressed, profiling, you're not going to realize or understand what that is unless you've dealt with it on a regular base. The worst thing that America did to its people was to distort history, to like uh, make up a, a fairy tale of the ways things that came where we have to do all this research and backtrack and find the truth for ourselves. And there's still holes even in the truth that we found. The, the fact that we're still dealing with that construct really shows that we haven't grown as a culture. We still have a long way to go to actually evolve past these ideas and really finding who we are within ourselves, really doing that in that individual research of who we are ourselves. I mean, the reality is white people were enslaved as well. Jewish people were enslaved as well. The only thing that makes them different is that you could hide under whiteness. If you were Jewish, you could be white. If you were Irish, you could be white. As a person of color, you can't hide. Um, and I think that's the thing that really divides up uh, our oppression in the ways that it is, is that the idea and the construct of race is really what divides us. And because we're not having authentic conversations on how we really view it versus uh, mass media telling us how it is, uh, we're still dealing with the ideas of one another versus dealing with the realities of one another. It's interesting thinking about, you know, race constructs and whatnot uh, and and kind of relating back to what you were saying a while ago about um, black and brown folks and indigenous folks holding down the heartbeat, Mm. right? Um, Because you have to wonder, once you start picking everything apart, like what is anti-blackness? Like why do Mm. people hate black people so much? Mm. Like what is it about whiteness that hates an aspect of itself that just happens to be black? You know, like, what is it that um, they are experiencing in their body, in their story body, in their history, in their long distant past, in their right nows, in their presence? Like, what is it in them that um, when they see us, like something is is invoked and and some folks don't like looking at it and they shun it and they um, seek to repress it at all costs. They're holding on to that part of their identity so hardcore, that fear of themselves. Um, And then there are others who flock to it and seek it out and are looking for um, their own histories, their own heartbeats, their own roots. You know, when they see and hear the rootedness of drums, when they see and hear the rootedness of communities who take care of each other because we have to, because our survival depends on it. You know, um, when you are priv- in a place of privilege, you know, you are slightly removed from certain aspects of your community. You know, you live in a big house and where are your neighbors at? Yeah, who is your community? When you're in gated communities, when you are in these million dollar mansions, like who are you kicking it with on the regular, you know, and, and what do, what do, not saying that, you know, you can't build strong community in fancy houses, but, um, you know, a lot of the ways that community gets, gets, those bonds are, are solidified so strongly in a lot of black and brown communities is, is out of need base, you know, like, 
I need somebody to watch my baby. You know, can you do that, please? Like, I'm, you know, trusting. I need a babysitter. I have to go to work. Like, you are forced to make connections with community. You're forced to rely on other people to meet your needs, you know, um, uh, because capitalism don't play. And (laughs) there's very little wiggle room for that, you know. So it's interesting, like, once you start, like, digging more at the roots, it's like, well, you know, who exactly created this reality and, and, and what is this reality about that we're talking about? Um, I, I fluctuate between, you know, being of this world and, and beyond being of recognizing, you know, the history of this reality on this plane of, okay, there's, there's this thing called race. There's this thing called blackness. There's this thing called whiteness. There's this thing called duality. And then, scratching the surface a little bit more and and realizing that there's even like cosmic realities right like oh this may or may not have been my first life even and like oh like i actually have cosmic relatives oh like there's a whole lot going on in the invisible world that we actually don't see and we're caught up on like this extremely minute aspect of reality of us manifesting in different colors. So it's, it's, it's interesting fluctuating as a human being between these different worlds. And it's like, what does the purpose of maintaining the structures of this reality where race matters, where, you know, binaries matter and where power structures matter and, and to who and for what? And what are we upholding? What are we maintaining? And for why? And and I find it interesting, the places where things start to unravel, the places where things start to waver and like be uh, creating portals of liminality and not sure what, where you're going and, and what plane you're in anymore um, are artistic places, you know, uh, artists do that really well. Like you could stare at a painting for who knows how long and and you were somewhere else like you weren't even here and uh were you even human i don't know like you you can do that with art you can do that with soundscapes and music and words and poetry um i have been in many a portal created by artists and um what a blessing and 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 i i think that's a really powerful position you know all three of us identify as artists here in this room and 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 the power that you hold to create those places and oftentimes those are our most safe places how do you feel about the living word as a tool to design worlds and and how your artistry kind of informs how you go about creating your own worlds and dreaming your own dreams of how things could be i found power in that i think it was from um reading doing a lot of reading and um, within me doing a lot of reading, that's where I found inspiration. You know, that's where I was able to uh, redefine my identity. And I think that whether my dad was conscious of it or not, he left enough around for us to pick up to really like chew on these different ideas of uh, blackness. Uh, past what we were observing on television and uh, things that we were listening to at that time. And then really doing history and understanding history and getting into the depths of what history is, is really where I started to understand the power of words 
and the power of um, being able to tell the stories of things that happened before you, you know? We don't give enough credit to artists, I feel, as um, the uh, the passers-on of history, you know? Like, uh, But when you do more research, you know, the powers that be even understand that. They understand it so much that they invest in it. You know, they buy us to make sure that uh, history is um, painted in the ways that they want it to be viewed. So, like, the fact that them as oppressors um, understand the importance of art, words, creativity, and uh, being able to redirect that, you know, shows the alchemy in it. It shows the the ability to uh, manifest new things out of it, you know. I think that one of the best lies that they've sold to the black and brown community is um, illiteracy. There's always something that they've taken away from us, you know, like you think about uh, indigenous people, you think about uh, people from Africa. Um, the, the first thing that they took away from us is our ability to have our own language and our abilities to read their language. And I think that that right there, in my opinion, shows the power of word, you know, like when they take your tongue away or if you're not able to understand their words and, and the complexity of their words, you know, the Latin roots of some of the words that we utilize on a regular basis that we just throw out and don't think about where that was rooted from, where that came from. It shows the magic in it. So I think us as artists, uh, specifically writers, we're able to show young people and adults a uh, new perspective and um, really give them hope and inspiration and um, the ways that they view themselves and the ways that they view each other in society. And I think that is one of the struggles of being a communal grassroots artist, right? Uh, because we talk such uh, harsh truths, we're always put to the back burner, you know, and they don't want to elevate you to a commercial status because that's a threat to their overall system and the ways that it forms. But we're also engaged with the youth. So because we're giving them uh, another way of looking at things, and I think that's really what our power is as writers, as educators, we're able to access true futurism, right? Like evolving the youth is true change. Right now I've been utilizing hip hop, mostly because I feel our young generation is already just naturally connected to the culture of what it is. So really getting them to identify to like, it's an indigenous culture um, that was created when everything was taken away from us. We, we went back to our roots and found a way to express ourselves to get messages out. My struggles in life also gravitated me towards what I do artistically, my experiences with going to jail, my experiences uh, with um, just struggle within uh, school and things like that, it really defined the person that I was going to be. And um, helping them understand that their struggles, their hardships, and the things that they're going through is really fuel for the fire, for greatness. And um, I think that artistically... When somebody who's going through struggle has an outlet, it really makes them, especially when they have uh, guidance and mentorship within where they're, where they're at, uh, it makes them uh, the evolution of what is to be next because they identify with it, where they came from and they have an example of what they could be. And where, where, can where can we go. find your work? 
You can find me um, on my webpage, uh, il7ilse7en.com. Uh, you can find me on Facebook under that. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter, SoundCloud, Spotify, I-L-L-S-E-7-E-N. It's the best ways to find me. Google me. Whatever. <laughs> However you choose to find, find me. Find him in the flesh. Yeah. Catch a show. If you're outside the Denver yeah. area, fly in to see this brother perform. Make an event out of it. Love Mestiza and I did that with Yasin Bey. Mr. Most Deaf, we flew out to Chicago back in 2013. There's no reason not to fly to Denver, Colorado to see my man Il7 tearing up the mic. One love. Bless. Mil gracias for listening to Brown Genius. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes and spread the word. You can find us at browngeniuspodcast.com and on Instagram and Facebook. Brown Genius is hosted by Molina Speaks and Cherie Lovemistisa Brown. Produced by Rodney Sino Cruz. 